0: Welcome back, Kafka Bond listeners. We're up to podcast 58 here, and today's an exciting day for Tony especially. Um, they say a kid at Christmas, and speaking to him yesterday before this podcast, that's definitely what he's like today. So I'm normally the one doing the introductions, but I actually am going to hand it over to Tony, um, and I'm looking at his face at the moment via Zoom in this new world that we live in, and there's a big smile here. So Tony, please introduce our lovely guest today.
1: Well, our wonderful guest today is a young gentleman by the name of Stephen Solomon, uh, Australian uh, Olympian, 400 metres, and we are going to talk to Steve about not just his athletic career, but a bit of his background and his business career moving forward. But also one of the things is if you think of our uh, clients and our SME owners is how to deal with disappointments, uh, how to, where there is change, where there's the opportunity and change moving forward as well. So and I
0: think, I think you, sorry, you've just touched on that opportunity and we'll, we'll probably finish the podcast on something um, that Steve's working on at the moment. And I think that that's just a great example of jumping into an opportunity
1: yeah so i'm just going to read a little bit about uh steve if that's okay jamie and steve so bear with me a moment if that if you can uh so steve has spent the last six years as student athlete at stanford university and duke uh, university his experiences have molded him into a prominent and short-footed leader and he's excited to transfer those skills that brought him to the top of his athletic and academic worlds to deliver value to the business world and I'm going to, in respect to my first experience, uh, having met a number of Australian Olympians, uh, have, actually haven't met Steve face-to-face. Uh, we've communicated on several occasions, but the, uh, the, I first came across Steve in the 2012 London Olympics and didn't know who this young, fresh-faced 19-year-old was, running in the 400 metres, seemed to always uh, come through the field uh, in regards to getting there and and what an exceptional you know two thousand Olympics, but the way you handled yourself all the way through with your interviews as a nineteen year old I was quite amazed at uh, how. Poised you were, um, and how humbled you were as well. So, Steve, uh, and I did see, I was saying to Jamie, I did, uh, as I was coming back from swimming training one early morning, I did see a young guy walking down Glen Ferry Road. There was him talking to someone else, sent a text saying, What in the hell is Steve Solomon, the Olympian, doing walking down Glen Ferry Road? And you did turn around and said, I have good eyes, which I don't have, as you can tell, I'm re- <laughs> wearing glasses. So, so, so um, Steve, welcome to our podcast. It is an honor to have you and congratulations on all of your successes today and future successes, both in the sporting and business world to come.
2: Thank you, Tony. That's, that's far too kind of an introduction, but it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you and Jamie today, and I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Yeah, no, Jamie was just having a conversation with you regarding Duke University and uh, where the athletics team hated as much as the basketball team, but apparently you guys were okay.
2: We were okay. I think it's probably because we kept our profile a little lower than the basketball players. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Steve, I, I, can can I just start on one thing? And Jamie, uh, I want you to cut in because you are the expert interviewer. I'm just here chatting to someone who, sincerely. Sincerely, who I sincerely admire. Um one of the things is you, you came, you represent Australia in soccer in the, what's known as the Jewish Olympics, the Maccabi games over in uh, Israel. And I think was the, was it the Australian under 17 team? You represented at that stage That's and reading your bio prior to realistically 2009 athletics, you're obviously quite talented, but athletics really wasn't on the radar as a career. And you, First put on the spikes, took it seriously in about 2009. But three years later, you're running in the final of the 400 metres. Now, that's pretty unheard of. Um, why the transition? How did that transition come around?
2: It's, it's a really good question. Uh, you know, I was a typical young uh, Australian who just loved sport growing up. And, you know, my parents spent their weekends schlepping me from rugby practice to soccer games to tennis to swimming lessons back to a rugby game. And, you know, growing up, it was just sport. Sport was just something I loved. I loved the competitive aspect. I loved being able to persist with something and just naturally get better at it as my body started to mature. I think, um, you know, when I look back at my soccer days, I think every kid can remember when they started, you know, making a cross in from the box and then started making the cross in from the sideline and then being able to take a throw in and reach the center of the box and just kind of develop with the natural, um, the natural acceleration of of kind of um, time, that that kind of hooked me, you know, from an early age. And and soccer was my first love in sport. I think I got that mainly from a, a very close family friend of mine, um, David Hurwitz, who I who I was in the neonatal uh, unit with when I was when I was born. His his father was a very good soccer player, Arnold Hurwitz, and um and and David's older brother Danny uh, was a kind of Uh, and Gary were soccer stars growing up so I think my first love if I really think back at it to soccer really came from my best mates brothers who were kind of examples to to the kind of athletes and and skill that you could acquire at the game so I persisted with that for a long time was able to enjoy a lot of success on the field made some great friendships through soccer Um, you know I still have very strong memories of Every afternoon, coming home from school, dropping my bag, taking the dog up to the park. We, we grew up in the the northern suburbs of Sydney and and just juggling the ball for hours. Um, you, it, it got to the stage where once I hit a 1,000, I'd just stop and go home. Um, but that was kind of something that I could just do all day, every day. It didn't phase me. I would have just a single soccer ball. Um, you know, I, I wasn't one of those kids who could bring a whole bag of soccer balls and, and, and start kicking them for goal, it would be, you know, set up a free kick, take it, go retrieve the ball. Come back, set up a free kick, take it,
1: go retrieve the ball. So was that the start of your athletics career? Was it doing intervals? <laughs> it might <not laughs> well role
2: along with carrying my school bag up the enormous flights of stairs that, that I had to do every day in high school. But the transition really came, um, you know, athletics is a sport so often dominated in the early years by um, men and women who who develop before the rest. Um, yeah. you know, it's very difficult to compete with a man when you're a boy. Yeah. And so whilst I was fast, you know, in the early, you know, late years of primary school, early years in high school, I saw had a very small frame and I still had a lot of development to do. So I think crucial to my transition was that I was in an environment where even whilst I was not excelling, uh, certainly to the degree that I was excelling on the football pitch, I was still just having so much fun. You know, um, I love the challenge and, and I did so many different events uh, in my younger years. I now specialize in the 400, but I started off running the 100 doing the long jump. You know, I, I would do the high jump until the bar got over my head. And then I physically, uh, I had this mental thing where I couldn't jump over a bar that was above my head and my... um my my coach at the time through school would would get so kind of frustrated that he'd show me these films of me miles over a bar but as soon as it went over 184 I, I wasn't going I wasn't able to take off um and then kind of again you know athletic season was just 6 weeks a year in high school every yeah. every other day of the year was soccer and I um I started getting to the point around grade 10 so what I was about 16 in grade 10 that um I was starting to mature and I went from being kind of a fast kid to a really fast kid. And, um, I was, you know, you're able to run the races differently as you're, as you develop, you know, as you get stronger aerobically, you're able to push at different sections. As you get stronger physically, you've got more power, you've got more speed coming out of your stride. And I just started, you know, going from winning school races to winning into school races and breaking some, some records, um, which qualified me for the um, for the state all schools championships in, in grade ten, I was able to, to 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 win that, which qualified me for the national all schools championships, uh, to which I showed up and and won uh, without any formal uh, 400 meter specific training. You know that was all all from just a soccer background. And I think there are a lot of parallels between a good soccer player and a 400-meter runner, you know.
0: I was so running- you, were, you, were you playing on the wing in soccer or what was I it was,
2: I was. Yeah. I, I played up the front to the left. So, um, you know, it, it, was, it was great for two reasons. One, it meant that I had these, these bright red boots that um, drew a lot of <laughs> attention. But the other thing that drew attention was my speed. So we were able to really disrupt a lot of teams' uh, plans because with me up the front, uh, they had to sit a, a deep defense because any ball that came through or over the top uh, they, they didn't they didn 't fancy too many chances against me on those so th- those were those were like the, the good days playing soccer, but kind of I guess the thing that pushed me over to to the athletic world was um, after I won those national championships in grade ten in in the school level, I was introduced to a woman by the name of fira devoskina and uh, and fira. Uh, was a Ukrainian refugee who landed in Australia um, just after the Sydney Olympics. And she spoke no English when she arrived and came to this country as a refugee, fleeing, fleeing the Ukraine. And, and it was just self-taught seamstress. That's what she was doing while she was here. She was a very renowned coach back in the Soviet Union. But when she came to Australia, she, she was a seamstress. And she had no intentions of going into athletics. She couldn't speak English. Um, you know, she almost considered those days behind her. But one day, her a former athlete of hers from the from the Ukraine was was travelling in Australia and bumped into her in the road, and and basically said, Vera, like, unbelievable to see you. And what are you doing here? Who are you coaching? And she was communicating the story of how, you know, she fled the Ukraine. She's here. She doesn't speak any English. She's certainly not coaching anyone. And and this uh, person asked if if he if she would coach. Uh, his son. Uh, And she said, yeah, you know, that was her love. That was her skill. That's what she was so good at. So she ended up going to the athletics track and started coaching this kid and people started seeing her at the athletics track, obviously a little bit curious, you know, someone doesn't speak English doing things differently from what everyone else seemed to be doing. Fast forward um, a number of years to, to when I met Fira, she had already coached numerous Olympians, uh, Australian Olympians And and when I was introduced to the opportunity to train with her and her team, um, I was coming in as the youngest athlete in the squad. I was 16. I think the next youngest was early 20s. And I found a group of people who were there to mentor me um, through this transition and this exciting time. Um, And I also found a coach who could recognize my talent and knew what to do uh, with that talent. And, and I guess the rest is history. I fell in love with the sport. I fell in love with Fira. I fell in love with my training squad. And when you enjoy something as much as I did, my athletics, uh, you obviously have some natural uh, genes that, that are advantageous to that pursuit. And you're in an environment where you're competitive, you're young, and you don't really know how big a goals those that you are setting are. Um, you can produce great success, to which uh, I was able to do in London 2012.
0: So the no, you, build, I guess the build-up to uh, that though is what what's the stages from a sixteen-year-old to to reaching the Olympics? What's a training plan even look like?
1: In three years. In three years. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So and and she is definitely um, probably Australia's most uh, renowned athletics coach. Uh, I would suggest very most people don't know her what's at all. Uh, but yeah, the the true champions of track and field seem to be uh, under her at present, which is wonderful.
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. The idea of like, how do you transition from really a schoolboy runner to an Olympic finalist in three years? And, you know, really we would need Fira here. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away in, in early 2018. But, you know, what she was able to do, um, which I think is a good uh, lesson and takeaway and kind of insight for, for everyone listening is when a lot, of, a lot of coaches would see me at the athletics track, you know, when I was starting to show some potential and they'd come up to me or my father or whoever I was with at the time and, and tell me all their grand plans for how they're going to take me from where I was until and to this great athlete. And all of those plans involved doing things very differently from how I was currently doing them. And it kind of at first glance, it was like, okay, I was very new to the sport. I was probably not doing the right things. But Fira was the first person really to come and say... You are a soccer player, Stephen. You are a soccer player. You are not a runner. Um, I'm not going to train you like a runner because you have not had the history of a runner. Um, you know, you're know, you strong over the last 100 meters of the race, probably because you've been juggling the soccer ball thousands of times a day for the last couple of years. Your hip flexors are probably through the roof. Um, you know, From the body positioning that you run in, you're not able to get up to speed as quick as some of your competitors, but that's okay because you maintain speed very well. You have a, a really strong gear shift. You know, I have a very good sense of how fast I'm running, probably because you have to time where you run to you know, on the football pitch to, to be in the right position at the right time to, to receive the ball. So Fira was able to look at me and say, this is a soccer player who has enormous potential as a runner, but I'm gonna continue to train him as a soccer player over time will turn him into a runner, but right now he's a soccer player. And so I started training with Thero when I was 16. When I was 17, I won my first um, Open National Championship with her, running 45, 54 or 58, um, which ranked me as one of the fastest juniors in the world that year. Um, qualified me for my first senior national team, uh, which was the World Championships in Daegu. And, and I think I became the second youngest Australian ever to, to debut at a world championships. And I was still a soccer player at this stage. And that's why I bring it up is I was still a soccer player. And it really was the next 18 months after that that Vera started taking me from a football player, soccer player, into a professional 400-meter runner. And she did that by very slowly almost drip-feeding me workouts and drills and routines that I needed to do if I was to become a world-class 400-meter runner and you know that's my takeaway lesson of what Fira was able to do and i don't think a lot of other coaches were able to do and that was recognize who i was what my background was where i wanted to go what my potential was uh to get to to the places i wanted to go but also know that i couldn't take the conventional route i couldn't take the same training as um as someone who's been in the sport for, for their entire lives
1: no, it's, it's, it's interesting, that background. I, one of my dearest friends is a lady by name, Michelle Baumgartner. And Michelle um, has a, you know, a horrible story in respect to athletics. And I think, and when I say horrible story, unbelievably successful, but qualified as a 16-year-old uh, for the 1980 Olympics. Of course, Australia boycotted. She was pressured into boycotting um, as well. So she did because she was young and she would have plenty of opportunity to come around and of course those opportunities never came she finally re-qualified uh she ended up becoming anorexic she um, or bulimic sorry she ended up um, having real weight issues um and then qualified again for the 92 olympics which was wonderful in an event which wasn't her event uh yeah. being the 800 meters and then snapped her achilles just prior to it so so the when the opportunity is given but what it seems to be for you is you actually had a coach who might've been coaching many people, but looked at you as an individual and actually did something, which has helped your career as an individual, rather than trying to fit you into somebody else's box.
2: That's exactly right. And I think the other thing also, I just got shivers uh, listening to that story. Cause I know yeah. the planes of uh, missing out, which I'm sure yes. we're going to get into soon. But yep. the other important thing that I, that I mentioned there is it's, it's, it was also, it was fear up, but it was also what we called team fear up. So it was a training squad. You know, I would, um, I would have a training squad that believed in me uh, when I was much younger uh, than anyone else in the squad. And they would literally put themselves through hell for my benefit. And what I mean by that is for those who haven't or aren't familiar with how athletics training works, it's kind of like similar uh, to how you watch the Tour de France where there's a guy who's kind of setting the pace and the rest of the guys are kind of trotting along at that pace And it's always harder to be the the leader. It's always harder to do the work at the start, especially when we get to the end of the workouts where we're staring down the last rep of a 250 meter run, which is gonna take us about 26 seconds. Uh, We're gonna be moving at about nine meters a second. And when we finish that run, we're probably gonna have our head in the bin, vomiting for a good 15 minutes and have a headache so bad that driving home is challenging. And you get to the starting line of that last rep and you're hurting, like, you, you know, you're, you've got to, you're not even seeing straight. And, and I had a training squad who would say, Steve, I'm going to go like hell for the first 100 metres of this rep, and I'm going to way overshoot myself. Um, but you're going to stay on my pace, and when I pull out, you're going to keep going. And I had people literally do that for me for, for an entire year, which, which was a huge help as well. So there was fear as belief her talent but then I also had a group around me that believed in me and were willing to sacrifice themselves in a lot of in a lot of cases um to to help me out so I was very fortunate there
1: you did post a video of a training session similar to that uh probably about a month or so ago uh so there was still some nice weather I think you're running around topless uh (laughs) but it was uh but yeah to um the way you were heaving for oxygen at the end of that last repeat actually nearly scared me uh
2: so it was not the first first to say that i think um
1: as a parent steve it it was painful to watch
2: (laughs) So, so. i I remember coming into work that next morning after that release came out in channel seven and my co-workers coming and saying like that was confronting like i knew you trained hard like i thought i had a perception of what you did when you left this office but that
1: was um that was confronting yeah yeah
0: I'm sorry, Tony, you go.
1: Oh, no, I was going to say, uh, moving to the 2012 Olympics, one of the things is, is that, and you mentioned it earlier, is when you're young and when you're 16, or 17, and, you know, we, we all have experienced what we call man-childs um, at school. So, you know, so people who are 10 and you'd swear they're 19, uh, who did excel at especially the physical sports, we're uh, in their younger years. So, you know, for Jamie, I'm sure he went to school for a few of those man childs playing no, football. No, it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't me, definitely. I no. that <laughs> but in saying that, though, one thing that was quite unique about their final, the 2012 um, Olympics, uh, for the 400 meter track. Besides the fact there was no American, which I think was the first time in history that there'd been in any games that they hadn't boycotted, uh, first time in history that they hadn't been a finalist, a US men's finalist in the 400 metres. Three of you were 19, and the actual eventual winner was also was a 19-year-old which is, you know, in swimming, 19 is nearly classed as ancient. Uh, but in athletics, you realistically don't seem to come to your full strength until you're in your mid to late 20s and even sometimes early 30s for the longer distance runners like the marathon runners, etc. So how, has, how did that change occur in your, in your thought process? Because you were certainly one of those 19-year-olds uh, where you're certainly not fully developed at that stage. You haven't been running for 15 years um, as well. How did that change, in your view, come around?
2: You know, I, I guess we're, we always kind of look backwards and, and try and come up with an explanation for how it came around. But really, I'll, I'll answer this by saying that, you know, I was just naive when I was coming into the Olympics in 2012. I was 19. Um, I'd run personal best every year for a number of years because I'd only been in the sport for a number of years. And... You know, I remember the head coach of Athletics Australia uh, pulling me aside in our pre-camp, which we did just outside of London in a, in a school called Tombridge, and said to me, um, Steve, like, what are you, what are you hoping for? What are, you, what are your goals for these games? And I, with 100% confidence, said, I'm going to make the final. I want to make the final. And he kind of looked back at me and said, if you can make it out of the heats, that's going to be unreal. <laughs>
1: like,
2: you should be unbelievably proud if you can get out of the first round is that Eric Holder? Uh, yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay. No. So it's uh yeah. There's. Uh, it's not really the self belief a young athlete should be hearing, him, but uh, that's that's a story for another day. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's, uh...
2: But yeah. So, so and but I would say this same thing to to kind of anyone who asks. You know, what do you what do you want to do here? And the only person who really believed it was myself and my coach. And. You know, I can only say now as a mature athlete, um, I didn't know what it meant to make the final um, when I was setting that as a goal. Yep. Um, You know, you take, you look at the Olympic Games, you take the 48 fastest runners on the planet and you put them in the heats. And then you take that 48 and you say, half of you aren't coming back tomorrow. Yep. And you knock out half the field already and you're left with the final 24. And then you say to those 24 fastest athletes in the world, only eight of you are going to progress now. And, you know, 30, 30% of the people standing in the courtroom before the semifinals make it to the final. Yeah. And, you know, when you, when you look at it like that, you're like, yeah, you're a 19-year-old, a sorry, who's never run a professional race in an Open Championship shouldn't, shouldn't debut at the Olympic Games in the final But um, I had this great belief I was coming off a bronze medal at the World Junior Championships a few weeks earlier. Um, So I knew I was in career best shape. I had family and friends over in the stands. Um, I was healthy, I was fit, and I was fearless. And, you know, one of the parts of the Olympics which makes the Olympics uh, such a spectacle and, you know, such a hard championship as, as an athlete is... You've got 95,000 people in the crowd. The track is so loud in, in, the, in London that when Mo Farah was running the 10,000 metres, the, the, the fo- there's a camera that's at the finish line that takes a photo finish. They call it the photo finish camera. And that's because, um, you know, in, in, in events like ours... You know, it's literally thousands of a second, hundreds of a second that separate victory from defeat. So that you need that camera to determine who won. That camera couldn't remain stable. That's how loud it is in the stadium. That camera was shaking, wow. and vibrating. So you walk out um, to a stadium without much energy, and you have to you have to control yourself. You have to bring yourself into your own head. And like you correctly said, um, you know, I ran my own race in London. In every in every round, the heat to semi the final, I wasn't. Winning at the 300 meter mark. Um, you know, I think I was coming sixth or seventh at 300. Yeah. Mark. And, but that's just how I trusted. That's where I was as an athlete. That's how I needed to run, which takes enormous discipline because it's very hard to see somebody come past you on the back straight and not react to that. Um, but I was able to do it. I was able to maintain that sense of focus. And, um, and that's kind of probably how I ended up achieving such a, such a, Achievement, which I shouldn't have, you know, like achievement probably bigger than where I was at the time, but I had enormous belief in myself. I had a great uh, coach. I had a family support network in the, in the games. And I think the other thing I always backed myself on doing is preparing better than any other athlete in the field. Um, You know, I looked around and I said, I'm not physically as big as any of you. Um, You know, you, you guys will outperform me in any single exercise, but can you string it all together in front of 90,000 people? i for some reason, back that I could, um, and and it worked out.
1: It worked out to perfection. So it's uh, as I said, I, I remember uh, watching uh, watching you through the heats actually, um, and saying to my now twenty three year old, who wasn't a bad runner uh, in his younger days, and saying, watch him come through the field. You know, just watch him. You just it was just your poise and just watching you come through the field. But there's a couple of things that are shining through with that. We we actually spoke about uh, this in one of our earlier podcasts, Jamie, about being the hardest worker in the room. Uh, the most successful people are not necessarily the ones with all the natural talent. Obviously there is some talent there, but they're also the hardest workers in the room. And we gave comparisons there to you know the likes of Jason Dunstall going for two hours after training had finished to have an h- extra 100 shots a goal. Um, spoke about the likes of Kobe Bryant. I spoke about some of my uh, sporting heroes as well. And Jamie's got a, you know, a mountain of sporting heroes. But it does seem to be those people who have that self-belief, the hardest working people in the room. But also too, in saying this, Steve, I've also said uh, that you're also actually quite humble. You don't, you don't have any arrogance uh, at all about you. You bend over backwards uh, to be able to help people and you are a real role model for athletics in this country without any doubt to any young people. But I say that also too because it's backed by a bucket load of self-belief and discipline uh, that comes with that and I think that really shines through. But in saying that, how does that uh, discipline come and how do you deal with disappointment? that has followed since 2012. Uh, Disappointment and missing out. Injuries is, you know, sometimes I might just wake up and, you know, not feel 100% on a Monday morning, but I can still go and perform. You can't do that as an athlete so if you're injured. So do you want to talk us through some of those uh, feelings, please?
2: Definitely. I think, um, you know, where I get that that work ethic from uh, is definitely my parents. So my father, Michael, is probably... Not probably without hesitation, the hardest working person I've ever met. Um, you know, so much so that my my mother recalls a time when I was a kid, where I the, the the home phone rang and and I must have been five or so at the time and and I picked up and said hello and, and they said, uh, is this Michael Solomon, which is my father's name? I said no, this is son Stephen Solomon. And they said, well, can you put your father on the phone, please? And I said no, and they said why. And I said, well, my father leaves the house before the sun comes up and he only gets home well after the sun is set, so he's not home at the moment. Um, and so, you know, I, I grew up with a, with a family who, who exampled work ethic and discipline and, and doing things um, that were, were, were tough and, and not doing things uh, kind of the, the layman way. And and I also have a mother who, who who Lucille, she, she grew up and um, throughout her teenage years got, got chronic arthritis in her hands and her feet. And she was a swimmer growing up and, um, and had to stop swimming and and now has all her hands and her, and her feet fused because any movement, any sudden movement in the bone with arthritis causes the bone on bone to, to scrape and, and it's immensely painful. But if you'd met my mother and you didn't know those things, you would never know that she... Lives life with this um, this great disability. She's incredibly positive. She never complains, um, and I think all of those uh, all of those qualities kind of I, I grew up with. You know, as an in an environment. So when it came to working hard or just getting things done or persisting um, for not following the norm, uh, I, it came almost naturally through my parents' example, and. You know, part of the way that we we will kind of transition now to to dealing with disappointment. I think um, I think I you know sports. What I love about sport, and I think why sport is such a great teacher, and I think that everyone should uh, should have to persist with either a sport or a music or something like as such, is because. It gives you the, the the real life example that the, the road to success there's no single road. Uh, it's never ever linear, and um, you know you, you have to kind of reflect on the opportunities to learn, which so often only come through failure. And you know I'll, I'll take you through my biggest failure as an athlete, uh, which was uh, four years after making the final of the Olympic Games at 19. I Wasn't even on the starting blocks uh, at the Rio Olympic Games, and the amount of time that I missed those games by um, is about the same time it takes for you to clap uh, in front of your face and for that sound to travel from your fingers, your 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 palms to your ears. Four hundredths of a second is what caused me to miss out on those games. But you know, if I take you back to the year 2015, so this is 18 months out before the Rio Olympic Games, I was studying at Stanford University. And I looked at where I was uh, and, and I had to make a decision of where was the best place for me to train ahead of the 2016 Games. I had a big scar on my left leg, which was the product of hamstring surgery, which I needed after tearing my hamstring in the semifinals of the Commonwealth Games a year earlier in 2014. And I was at my dorm at, at Stanford in this very intense environment in all aspects of the world, from the studies to the athletics. Um, it was my second last year there and I looked into what my last year would involve, the classes that I would need to take, the social pressures that were going to be there, my athletic situation and I realised that this wasn't the best place for me to train. Um, I needed to go back to Australia. I needed to move to the Australian Institute of Sport uh, and train with um, the daughter of my first coach who we spoke about earlier, thera thera was unfortunately in, in not the best health at, at that time so I went to go train with her daughter who who trained out of our Olympic Institute at Canberra. So with, with my family's backing, I made that decision and, and moved my whole life back to Australia. And that was a really, really hard decision. I don't think a lot of people can truly understand the gravity of that decision. I left my girlfriend over in the States at the time to move back home. I left all my friends. So I wasn't going to graduate with my friends. I knew that when I returned to school, none of my mates would be in my classes. They wouldn't be in the area. Um, You know, I I dropped my spot on the athletics team. I dropped my scholarship on the athletics team to move back home. All because when I looked at the question of where is the best place for me to train, that was the answer um, that I came to. And therefore, that's just what I needed to do. So I moved to Canberra and really lived like a kind of like a pilgrimage existence um, for, for 18 months. I woke up, I trained, I had a nap, I trained, I had lunch, I trained, and then I went to bed each night. And train, eat, sleep, repeat. Train, eat, sleep, repeat. And so I did that. And you know, I, I I came out in my first race of the season. I won our national championships and ran 4550. Um, no Australian had run faster than that for the last six years. Um, but it was point one of a second off the Olympic qualifier. So I said, okay, that's all right, that's a good start. Um Went back into training, ran another race, not great conditions, ran 45.90. Okay, go back into training. Went up to Townsville, uh, actually crossed the finish line to see uh, 45.20 come up on the clock, which is under the Olympic standard and was feeling elated, until I realised that the official time came up on the clock shortly after and my shadow had crossed the line before my body did and in oh, that difference of time the clock had rounded up from forty five twenty to forty five forty four, which is four hundredths of a second off the olympic qualifier this is around may i'm still feeling good i'm in good shape four hundredths of a second it's nothing and then i had a i, I left uh, the next morning to go over to europe to race the european season and i just never got a race that was right and um you know, it was, it was either, you know, I, I'll never forget, I was warming up in Geneva for this great race in Switzerland. I was feeling incredible. I was just like, this is it. You know, you just kind of have this feeling like this is the day I'm going to qualify. It's going to be done. I have all this pressure on me. It's going to be averted. I can start thinking about the Olympics instead of thinking about trying to qualify for the Olympics. And then within a, the time it took me to warm up for the race, an hour uh, and the race starting, the, the rain came out off the Swiss Alps and it just bucketed. And I can't tell you how hard it rained and, you know, we weren't able to qualify, you know, for, for, for you to qualify for the Olympics, everything needs to be perfect. Um, then I went across to Madrid the next week, missed the qualify again by one of a second. And, and, and to, to kind of continue that summary, it's just, I got to my last race. It was a small race in Belgium and I was running by myself and I, um, I went out ran a hard race, crossed the finish line and and was 0.2 away from the qualifier, 0.2 of the second. And that, I just remember feeling this like sense of like emptiness. It's kind of like the thing that I have literally thrown my life around for, um, have done everything right, Um, you know, have done everything against what I've enjoyed doing at times, you know, there were, there were sessions on the training track where, you know, I, I, I would run the session. The physiologist would be at the session, would prick my ear because that's how we take a blood lactate reading before my last rep. And I would tell him, don't tell me what that number is because I know it's going to be higher than, than what I want it to be, uh, which means I know that which, what amount of pain I'm going to be in when I finish this last rep. Um, and all of that came to, you know, quote, unquote, nothing. You know, that's the thing about athletics is it's binary, um in in that regard you qualify or you don't qualify there's no buts there's no ifs there's no whatabouts. there's no subjectivity it's just so blatantly quantitative and um so i i got through that year and you know i'm able to talk about it so freely now you know when when people find out that i'm olympian they, they immediately jump back to the last olympics and assume that it was rio
0: yeah
2: that i went to and i say no it was actually london and they're like london 2012 you must have been a baby um New and work. then the next yes. possible question is what happened to Rio? Um and I'm able to talk about it so freely and, and like we have just now, and they get to the end of the conversation and they say, I'm so sorry, like I didn't mean to bring up all that pain. Um, and I say you didn't. Um, I can speak about it freely because I made the best decision that I could with the information I had available to, well, to me at every point in time along that journey. And you know, all, that's all you can do. You, you know, you, hindsight uh, bias is, you know, hindsight's not real. Um, but what is real is is the learnings that you can take from from when you fail. So that was 2015, 2016 year. Um, fast forward now to the midway 2000, 2018, where I'm finish, finishing up at Duke University. I'm faced with the same decision I was in 2015, which is where do I base myself to train for the next Olympic Games, which was supposed to be this year in Tokyo. And having learned everything I did from my, my experience in 2015 and 16, I asked myself a very slight variant to the question that I used um, as a proxy, which sent me back from Stanford to the Australian Institute of Sport, which was, where is the best place for me to train? That was a question I asked myself in 2015. Where is the best place for me to train? And and the answer to that was the Australian and of Sport. Because I went through that experience and it didn't work out, it allowed me to ask a very slight modification to that question when I was looking to decide where I needed to base for the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. And that slight variant is, where am I at my best? So the question came, where is the best place for me to train to where am I at my best? And what's so important about that question is things I learnt during my time in Canberra at the AIS, is your success in athletics is not purely determined by where you train. You can have the best facilities in the world. And, you know, we look at this from an outside perspective and it seems obvious, you know. Just because, um, Jamie, you're wearing the latest shoes doesn't mean you're going to beat me in a race. You can have the best technology in the world. It's not the only thing that contributes to your success. And that's what I learned at the top level when I was in Canberra. You know, there were things about my environment there while the training was spectacular and I had a wonderful coach, there were things that added to my performance that weren't there. You know, I didn't have any friends in Canberra. Um, everyone in my environment uh, was 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 doing the same thing. There was no div- diversity. I just had spent three years in America uh, hanging out with mates who were economics majors, physics majors, uh, human biology majors. People wanted to be doctors. People wanted to be lawyers. People who dropped out of... Stanford in the second year to go found a company in computer science, like there was diversity and I enjoyed the energy I got from that diversity. One of the things I also learned about my time in Canberra is I'm someone that enjoys feeling comfortable in their environment and part of feeling comfortable for me is knowing where I get my coffee from, knowing where I want to go if I want to have a cheap meal, if I want to go and have a nice muffin somewhere, you know, knowing uh, where I can go for a, for a good burger um, you know all these really small things. So I started looking at the environment um, of where the answer to the question is. Where where am I at my best? And I realised it was back in Sydney. You know, I, as part of what killed me in in Canberra is I was so close to Sydney. I was so close to family, which I get so much sense of comfort uh, and de-stressing from. But it was just it was almost like I was too close. It was better when I was in the States, where I knew that I couldn't just pop up. It was almost like I was too close and. And that's what I was able to learn. You know, that's what I was able to take away from my failure in, in Rio 2016. Besides the gravity of what making Olympic Olympics Games was, you know, we talked about um, how I really did have a dream time in 2012 in London. You know, everything worked for me. Everything clicked. I had the opposite of that in 2016. Everything didn't work. Um, and so I moved back from, from, the, from the United States back to Sydney, started training with a new training group here, and, you know, have, have, have done very well since I was in a great position for qualifying for this year's games, had opened up my, my year running on the track this year faster than I ever have in any year. Um, I've been feeling stronger and fitter and faster. Um, so that, that's, that's the learning for me. That's the, um, that's what learning from failure is, but you can only do that when you truly set yourself up to succeed. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I speak to a a lot of my friends about I'm very generous with my time with my friends and helping them through um, different problems that they're going through but one of my pet peeves and they know it if I've helped them through is did you fail or did you just not get the result that you wanted Uh, because to me failure is about looking at something and doing everything to promote the success of that goal identifying where it could go wrong identifying the right questions of how it can go right and making a plan and sticking to that plan and executing on that and if it doesn't work out, learning what, you know, what, what could have been done differently, which is a lot different from when, when you kind of just go about a task without that thought, without that detail, and almost that wishful thinking of it, it's going to work out. And if it doesn't, well, you know, did you set yourself up? It's right?
1: interesting you say that, even from a, me coming from a sporting background for 28 years in business now, is that I find that failure or even just disappointment can completely break somebody uh, or it can actually motivate them to say, "Okay, it didn't quite go well." Where it's not necessarily changing the goal, it's slightly changing the execution or the plan to actually achieve the goal. And it, it's interesting you spoke earlier about sport and music in school. One of my pet peeves was, I'm of the generation. I think I was in about grade five where they decided that in state schools, I went to. a I didn't go to a state school, but they decided that sport should no longer be compulsory. And as a result of that, I think we've seen an entire generation of uh, kids now who don't understand that it's okay to lose. It's uh, yeah. it's And also another thing you've really spoken of too is, and I know this is a huge part of Jamie's life as well, is actually the friendships uh, that are formed through life and through sport. And just the mental health that actually comes, you know, the, the positive mental health that comes with that as well. But being part of that team that strives week in, week out as a team with a whole group of people to actually go and try and win. So I've been part of Jamie's Football Club for a number of years and I've seen them through years where they could hardly win a game uh, through to the elation, uh, elation of uh, winning a grand final last year. Uh, and Jamie, that was, I think you've retired on the grand final win, haven't you, Jamie? Done.
0: Yeah, I've had me beers and I'm, I'm happy now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I think, though, it, it's a huge part of what you're saying there is that you actually, because, failure doesn't mean that you've actually done change, the, that you changed the goal. Failure just means that what, what has gone wrong in the execution. I think you've done that brilliantly. But in saying that now, um, the goal has been changed for you based on the year. The year now goes to 2021. So that's not, this, that's not failure or disappointment. That's just having to regroup. So how do you go from that focus of this is, this is what I'm going to do that to actually now have to wind back your training a bit with a view to peaking 12 months later? Just a yeah, change of mindset.
2: This is, it, it's, um, and, and you know, like it's, uh, I'll be honest, when, when in those weeks where we had a little bit of uncertainty, around the coronavirus, I'm usually someone who's very good at kind of looking at a situation finding the truth in it and kind of acting appropriately to that truth. Um, I didn't do that with the case of the coronavirus. I held on to the belief that the Olympics would still go ahead for a long time. And I think that was important because for, for, because, in order for me to, to put my body through what I need to, um, to get the results that I need to, I, I can't have any whimper of doubt that the thing that I'm about to do um, isn't going to happen or, you know, there's going to be nothing to show of it. But when the when the decision did come around that the games weren't going ahead, um, you know, the first thing I felt was, was a sense of relief, to be honest, because there's just so much stress that was being built up in the weeks leading up to that decision. You know, um, friends, family, co-workers asking, you know, is the Olympics going to go ahead? Is the Olympics going to go ahead? Uh, I don't know. I'm not the decision maker. <laughs> um, you know, I, you know, and and I have to train with this uncertainty. Um, I think one of the things that the IOC did to the advantage of athletes is while training under the lockdown and training under imperfect conditions was stressful, um, I think it was still better than them coming out and saying, we don't know if the Olympics are going to head. You know, they were very bullish on they're going ahead, they're going ahead right up until they said, actually, they're not going ahead. Um, But that was quite helpful. Um, having said that I did um, I did take some time off after the decision um, from the from the physical structure of our training um, you know I was set emotionally and physically to run at our national championships which served as our Olympic qualification uh, event the next week you know literally six six days after the they, they cancelled the Olympics for this year and um, so I took some time off I was able to um you know kind of let that stress kind of um, dissolve through my system. Uh you know, I could feel myself just getting agitated at things that shouldn't make me angry. Um I'm not an angry person or I don't no. <laughs> really um, you know, I, I, I take on a lot of stress in my life, but I don't show a lot of uh that. But I found myself being um a little bit short, shorter tempered than than I than I usually am. And I was able to just recognize in myself and that's one thing I think athletics has given me is it is an acute self-awareness that I needed to take a break I just needed to relax um, so I took a, f- a few weeks off I spent a lot of time with our community trying to help them through this because while I'm very fortunate to be um, you know living at home with my with my family and to be working outside of uh, my athletics as well there there are many in the community who you know, still have bills to pay. Um, You know, I still have bills to pay athletically, but they had bills to pay, um, you know, living expense wise. Just live. Yeah. And, 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 and their income has suddenly gone to zero. And not only is their income gone to zero, their entire identity, which is centered around the Olympic games um, has been shifted. And so I spent a lot of time kind of doing what I could in the community. And I'll just share one more insight with that is, I spent a lot of time at at the start going directly to the athletes and only probably two weeks in did I realise that it wasn't just the athletes I needed to be speaking with. It was the support team. You know, it was the physios who, um, you know, were preparing an athlete who were doing so much to get them in the shape. And then all of a sudden it it not be there. Um, It was the coaches, you know, the coaches, I think we all just, you know, assume that it was the athletes that needed a lot of, comfort, but it was also the coaches. They, they pour as much into it as we do. Um, and, you know, where does that leave us now? I took, as I said, a couple of weeks off training just after the announcement, but I'm back into hard training at the moment. Um, no one really quite knows what this next 12 months is going to look like because, you know, I can't tell you where I'm training next week, given uh, what the lockdown situation is. But, you um, you know, I, I've I've refound the energy and the motivation that I need to keep to keep going uh to 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 the extent that I need to at this time of the year through each training session. And kind of contextually the the winter training for a for a four hundred meter runner, it's kind of like the brutal part of the season. It's like where we put a lot of kilometers in the legs, the body's always sore. Um it's, yeah, just, it's a grind, you know, put it, put it, it's, it's kind of just like a grind. Um, and usually you get through that grind by saying, we're going to compete soon. Like we're like the competitions yeah. around the corner, like um, I'm getting strong, I'm getting fit, I'm doing all this now so that when we start competing, when we try to start transitioning the, those longer workouts into shorter, faster workouts, that my body's going to be able to handle it and feel good and strong. Um, you know, we don't have that at the moment because we don't know when competitions are going to resume. Um, we don't know when international travel is going to resume. Um, I don't know when I'm going to next be able to run on the athletics track. So there is a lot of kind of challenges in the community at the moment that I knew that I needed to find my motivation and energy, um, before I resume training, because, um, without that, I think I'd, I'd be finding it a lot more difficult than I am. I'm healthy now. I'm happy. The training squad's got a good feel to it. Everyone's motivated, knows where their energy is coming from. And we'll just continue to adapt as we need to um, over the weeks and months to come. And eventually we will return to kind of a more stable environment. And, and once we do, uh, we'll be ready to to get back on the track and, and get ready to prepare for the Olympics next year.
0: Yeah. I think that's, it's just exciting to hear how you take an attitude that, you know, okay, times have changed um, and we're all in unprecedented times. So people going through it, but you're also going to allow people to have access to this journey. And, you know, we talk, I think it's interesting. We talk about the four-year journey and you, you decide 18 months out, where am I going to train leading up to that? But so you have 12 months now um, and, you know, there's going to be different things that come with that 12 months. And as you're saying, you're not training the same. So what do you do for this next 12 months? And you've got an exciting announcement on Fox Sports tomorrow, live at 6.30. Um, so we can put people out to watch that. But what, what's this next 12 months going to involve? I
2: think you know that's that's part of the the beauty of of, of the unknown. Um, and so you know, after my initial uh, kind of giving myself some space, letting everything kind of simmer down, I started looking at you know what opportunity do I have here um, with the Olympic postponement and and you know things that that have never happened before and the and the Olympics have never ever been postponed. The Summer Olympics have never been postponed. Um, what what opportunity do we have and you know, one that immediately came to mind after after some thought was, well, we've got an event that us, us athletes spend four years kind of putting through the motions of all of a sudden being compressed to one year. It's a lot easier to follow something for one year than it is for four years, okay? Add in the excitement and kind of intrigue of people are going to be preparing for an Olympics, which they've never had to do before because they've had to delay their peak for a year, And they're going to have to be doing so in compromised training situations. You know, at the moment I'm, you know, running up the private street of a golf course um, because I can't get into an athletics track. You know, there's so many different ways that we're going to have to find to innovate. And the other thing that I think is available as an opportunity for the next 12 months is, you know, athletes, social media has been a wonderful thing for athletes because it's allowed uh, us to share with such a wide audience Uh, the things that we're doing but also with the social media it's 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 public it's it's really of the thousands of people in i interact with across my social media platforms they're all strangers um and just as you don't share what you share to your family um or your close friends with strangers um athletes are the same so i've decided that there's a tremendous amount of value that i want to share and can share with a community that if i can create something privately where people can come in and the right people can come in and people can come in with the idea of wanting to learn what is, what is it like to, to go and prepare for an Olympic games, you know, the biggest sporting event that's going to be in the world next year. What does that look like? Um, do so with a community that are interested in, uh, understanding, you know, the true echelons of high performance, um, to, to go through a ride that could potentially end up in the wild highs of, you know, an Olympic medal, but it could also end up in the tumultuous lows of, of, of failing to qualify. Um, so that's what I've done is I've set up, there's a, there's a community platform called Patreon and, and we'll, we'll attach the link in this podcast where I'm inviting people in for a small, for a small fee to my journey um, and to share that journey with them and to speak very openly, candidly about everything that I'm going through, everything that I'm thinking, Um, you know, publicly, if you follow my Instagram, you'll see that I'm training. Uh, If you're part of my Patreon community, my private community, you'll see, um, you know, what's going through my head uh, before a workout uh, that I know is going to leave me on the ground vomiting or, um, you know, what is, how do I select the people that I train with? You see on my public profile that I'm training with people. How do I determine who's in that training squad? Who's not? Um, so those are all the things that I'd like to you know, deliver value uh, on. And, um, and yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm really nervous uh, you know, for doing this. This is the first thing I've ever done in this regard. Uh, I haven't seen any other athlete in the world do it, uh, set up a private community like this and, and be really open, honest and vulnerable. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to giving people the opportunity to really kind of come behind the curtain and, and see what the Olympics and training for the Olympics is like.
1: I also think, though, on that, Steve, what it also does is it gives people an insight uh, to the fact that there is also life besides athletics. Um, I know you don't train twenty-three hours a day, but like any good athlete, you do spend a fair. You need to, you need to sleep. You need recovery. Um, and you spend several hours a day eating as well. Not to look at you, not that you'd know that, but it's an important. It's an important part of life. I, I spend several hours a day eating. I'm just not doing the sport anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so it's um. But in saying that as well, there's there's always something that I've uh, stated, and that is that. The discipline you learn through sport, and even though the sport you're participating in, like my background in swimming and triathlon, was an individual participation sport, you're also doing it with a team and surrounded with a team as well. And the crossover to that after sport has finished, the the fact is one day our sport at this competitive level, when, you know, in 2021, when we see you on the on the podium, Uh, which we're all looking forward to watching uh, in 2021, uh, as you come through the field and stand on that podium. Uh, Hopefully that's top, top step. But in saying that, though, you're learning as a team player, even though you're doing an individual sport, you're learning the importance of having great people who are successful in their own things, whether it's coaching, physio, whatever the case may be, and also you having to strive with the discipline to achieve what you want to do. The crossover into the business world after sport hasn't always been successful for a lot of athletes. You can go through severe depression. I've always said that to any athletes that I've coached in triathlon. Have a goal after your a race. You have to have a reason to wake up the next morning. Sure. Uh, so do you want to talk us through what your thought process is? We know you're, you're now an executive with um, Uber. Uh, so do you want to talk about your thought process in that on actually the crossover to the corporate world?
2: Definitely. I think I think you, you you were spot on and couldn't say I better myself in the idea that not all athletes retire well and it's probably actually the the, the norm to, to not retire well. And, you know, that can come from a variety of reasons. You know, often an athlete doesn't pick their retirement. It's an injury that uh, forces it upon them or they get dropped from a team. Um, you know, I think it's so important that athletes uh, use the time that they have in their day to diversify their energy and really start to set themselves up for life after sport because um, there there always is a need to be as an Australian athlete. You know, there's very rarely are you able to set yourself up um, through your sport uh, to never have to work a day in your life um, beyond beyond your sporting years. So I'm, you know, I'm very uh, encouraging of, of education to begin with. Um, and, and I think that's part of my decision to go over to America was I felt that that was the best environment for me to be able to study and train and compete all at the same time. You know, I, I do acknowledge it's difficult in Australia because the university setup is not what it is in America where there's literally a term student athlete. Um, you know, they have a whole system over there that's designed uh, as an environment towards catering your study and your sport. Having said that, you can certainly... Uh, do, do do school over here and, and there's ways to do it. But it was just, uh, to, to me, a great avenue to go through to America. So once I got my, my degrees um, over in the States, I knew that I wanted to come back and work here because I thought it was important for me to start, um, you know, learning the things of business um, because I was interested in it. It was a nice diversification of energy and interest away from athletics. You know, if you're, if you're an athlete 100% of the time, you're thinking about athletics 100% of the time, you can sometimes, like anything, it's like moderation. Like, you you can go insane. You know, you can have a sore foot. And if you've got nothing else to do in the entire day, all you start thinking about is how sore your foot is. Um, and that's, that's no good for the mental health. It's no good for your physical health, um, you know, training either. So you know I'm, I'm very encouraging with the right employer that athletes do kind of enter the workforce while they're still competing and do so on a on, on the right basis for them uh, for me that was getting a a, job, a five day a week job that was something that I knew that the routine was was what I valued and what I could afford and if I could find an employer that was willing to give me the flexibility in the hours that I worked um, and the vacation that I would need to take away for training uh, that I could deliver enormous value to the company um, and that that was actually difficult to to find. That um, a lot more difficult than I thought. You know, when I was in America and I was interviewing at jobs in America um, prior to making the decision to come back home, everyone just got it. You know, oh yeah, of course you can pursue the Olympics and work at my company. Like, like it's like it's it's invisible to me that you can't because I've just seen that you've spent the last six years uh, studying. Uh, at two very intense institutions and pursuing athletically. Um, so they just got it. When I came back to Australia, they just, it was a complete opposite. They just didn't get it. Um, you know, I was having interviews and, and you know, partners would say, um, you know, Steve, what, do you, what, do, what are your flexibility? Like, how do you train? And I'd say, you know, on a Tuesday and a Thursday, I have to leave at two o'clock. If the building's on fire, I'm out at two o'clock. I'm sorry. That's squad training. There is no day in history where I'm going to be in this building on a Tuesday and Thursday past two o'clock. And they look back at me and say, okay, and what time will you be back in the office? And, you know, I just, I I just look at it and I say, you just don't get it. You know, I, like, I I can come into the office early. I'm most mentally acute in the mornings. I can tell you this, I can show you this, but I'm not going to get productive work done after, um, after a training session, like I have on those days. And, um, and, you know, that's one thing that athletes learn so well through their sport is like how to have acute self awareness. And I think if they, if, if they learn to communicate that a little bit more with employers, um, it can create more opportunities, but it was very difficult to find an employer here in Australia um, that was open to the idea that I could do the job better than anyone else out there. Um, I could do it by being in the office less, uh, less than 40 hours a week um and that i could also manage to to balance my training um but i i it's 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 just funny you know looking at it now where i where i am i'm i'm a an Uber and i was worried about it at the start that you know if no one else could believe that i could do it well
1: was i wrong like you know it, you know maybe i can't do it um it actually took an international company to agree with you yeah it did um
2: yeah. and and, and, you know, I was, I was nervous when I first got there. You know, I'd leave at 2 o'clock. I'd see my coworkers there and I'd know that they'd be staying until 6 o'clock. Um, and I was self-conscious. But then, you know, after a few months, you know, I'd say to my manager, I'm like, look, like, be honest with me. How is it when you see me leave at 2 o'clock? And she goes, Steve, I don't even notice you leave. Okay. Um, yeah. I, don't even, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even notice. You, you do your work to an exemplary standard. It's always on time. You look confident, you're running your own ship you're never no one's ever late, no one's ever waiting for you. you you know you know this this idea that you have in the head that people are noticing and thinking that you're not working hard or that you know you've got it easier
1: than whatever it just doesn't exist um, that's because you're the hardest working person on the track and you, and you want them well, to know it in the workforce as well i always told, I always tell my
2: manager at work you know if I'm doing something that's long or or really difficult, and she looks at me and she's like, How are you doing that? I'm like, This is easy. You come see what I do on the track. That's hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just a matter of perspective. But I do think it's very important that athletes start to transition um, during sport because they have the time to do it. Um, you also don't want to be starting your 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 life after sport at a junior, you know, entry level position when you're 30. Like, that's hard. Yeah. Um, you know, when your co workers are straight out of uni and still getting, um, you know, to the pub every Wednesday night, and not coming in on Thursday. Um, you know, you might be looking to start a family. That's the, you know, there's so many different stages in your life. Um, if if you if you remove yourself from the workforce for such a long time and, and wait and postpone it, I think um, I think you're actually making retirement harder for yourself. So I am uh, encouraging, and I again, I'm I'm very lucky. I've got amazing people around me that 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 help me. Um, helped me transition and and i think it's going quite well
1: so it's uh, I, I think steve that um just in in wrapping things up yeah, I have no doubt how well it's going to be, and no doubt how the next, uh, how old are you now? 26, 27,
2: yeah, 27 this month.
1: Okay, so I have no doubt that the next 80 years of your life is going to be <laughs> an amazing success. So it's, um, I've decided I'm living to 105. Once I hit 50, I decided I didn't want to beat the halfway point. So it's, uh, so, so, but in, in saying that though, I think your, uh, your attitude is just shines through in this interview. Uh, The success you have got is due to your own hard work. Uh, Your attitude towards failure and disappointment is magnificent because it's never held you back uh, from still going out, pursuing and achieving your goals. So, I want to sincerely thank you uh, for agreeing to come on today's podcast. i really looking forward to watching the next 12 month journey as I become one of those subscribers uh, to get inside Steve, well, to get inside with Steve Sol- uh, Solomon's thoughts. Uh, so really looking forward to that as well. So from from, from me uh, and from all of our team and from all of our listeners, a absolute sincere thank you. Can't wait to watch the next twelve months, and then can't wait to watch that uh, sub forty-five seconds to get you on the top stair of that podium, mate.
2: Definitely, it's been it's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful time chatting with you. Thank you so much, Jamie, and thank you very much, Tony, for uh, for having me on. Thank wonderful. you,
1: Stephen. Thanks, Steve.